Welcome to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center and Associate Professor of Urology at the UW, featuring important topics dealing with men's health, including prostate cancer and erectile dysfunction. Here's your host, Neil Scott. Welcome to the March edition of Men's Health Monthly, where we delve into the issues that are of major concern to men. Now, we've been on the air for the past 11 months with a number of the best health minds in Seattle, including my co-host, Dr. Tom Walsh. He's a surgeon, professor, and noted treatment specialist. He's the director of the renowned University of Washington Men's Health Center. Now, due to the corona COVID-19 virus, our world has changed dramatically since our February program. So we've asked our scheduled guest to reschedule his appearance And we've asked Dr. Walsh to shelter in place as well. So what we're going to do in this edition of Men's Health Monthly is to revisit some of the guests and programs that we've aired over the last 11 months. We'll share interesting clips from previous shows. If you'd like to listen to the full programs, they're archived at sportsradiokjr forward slash mens-health-monthly. And, of course, if you have any questions about men's health, we invite you to send an email to menshealthmonthly at iheartmedia.com. In future programs, we're going to ask Dr. Walsh to answer those questions. Your identity will be kept confidential. That's Men's Health Monthly at iheartmedia.com. So let's begin the March edition of Men's Health Monthly by going back to July when John Gore, an international authority on prostate cancer survivorship, joined us in the studio. Dr. Gore is a clinician, surgeon, researcher, and educator. He specializes in urologic oncology and general urology as well. During that program, we were discussing the human genome, our genes, our environment, and disease. You know, the human genome is massive, right? And I think we used to think about disease as something that like a single gene would turn on and turn off. And if you had that gene, you had the disease. And if you didn't have that gene, you were lucky. And that's just not how it works. The complex interplay between our genes and then the environment in which we live and and how we impact the way that these things all work together through our own behaviors, like smoking, like exercise, like diet. You know, it's it's a complex interplay that we don't always understand. And we used to think some of these genetic associations were fairly uncommon. And the more we learn and the more we unlock that code, the more we're we're learning that a lot of it is is genetic and related. Uh, A question from Anonymous. What are the latest advancements in erectile dysfunction? Is there anything new on the horizon? I think the greatest advancements in erectile dysfunction, I think number one is unlocking our understanding of just how closely linked things like erectile dysfunction are to cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular Mm -hmm. risk factors. And there is work looking to see are there specific ways we can identify those men who are most predisposed and who we could intervene earlier. In terms of medical treatments, there are very few new medical treatments that are currently under testing or on the horizon, but one of the treatments that is currently available in the here and now is something called the penile prosthesis. Mm -hmm. And that device is currently undergoing major advances towards how it interacts with men to restore their erections. Uh, A question from John in Bellevue is, if the prostate is strictly related to semen and reproduction, can men choose to have it removed much like a woman has a hysterectomy? The comment I always make to men is that 
the prostate has this unfortunate location in, in kind of the epicenter of the genitourinary tract. Mm-hmm. And so the prostate sits below the bladder in front of the rectum. The sperm tubes that bring sperm into the urinary tract, they enter into the prostate. And it sits above the urethra, the tube that you pee out of. And then surrounding the prostate are the erection nerves, the nerves that go underneath your pubic bone to the penis to help stimulate you to have an erection. So it's just a really unfortunate position to be in. So it's easy to say, much like a woman who's having bothersome fibroids mm-hmm. gets a hysterectomy at maybe a younger age, it's easy to say maybe we should consider sort of a prophylactic removal of the prostate. But the, the downside, the side effects of that are, are going to be stark. Even in a perfectly done prostatectomy, the best prostatectomy surgeon in the world, they're going to suffer some sexual function consequences. We did some work now about 10 years ago to look at how often men return to their baseline sexual health after removing the prostate for prostate cancer. And it's not to say that men can't be perfectly functionally sexually active, but the likelihood that they're going to have that same sexual function that they had before is, is zero. You potentially lose a lot by considering doing that. So that's not something we recommend ever. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Men's Health Monthly. Heard on 950 KJR on the last Tuesday of every month at 8 o'clock and 6.30 a.m. on 102.5 KZOK-FM on the last Sunday of every month. Due to the rapid spread of the corona COVID-19 virus and in accordance with Governor Inslee's mandates, we've rescheduled our guest for this month and asked my co-host, Dr. Tom Walsh, to shelter in place as well. As we share with you this month some of the great content from past programs, we continue with part of our conversation with Dr. John Gore, prominent researcher in the area of prostate cancer survival. I asked Dr. Gore to put prostate cancer in perspective in relationship to other cancers. So prostate cancer is a unique cancer in that even in the setting of aggressive cancers, men tend to live a long time. So the side effects of the treatment that we deliver are really important to their quality of life because even in the setting of an aggressive cancer, these men are living, you know, 8, 10, 12 years. And so understanding that balance of the quality of life and the quantity of life is really critical. I came from a training program where a lot of quality of life and survivorship research was about characterizing the problem. What is the magnitude of the problem? What is the burden of the problem? And we did a lot of work to kind of show that. But what we've tried to do, and I think what this latest wave of survivorship care is about, is actually trying to improve it trying to help men understand their survivorship needs. And so instead of just characterizing how men are doing after these treatments, we're trying to show men how they're doing with some context. What's important about prostate cancer survivorship is if you have a problem, like urinary incontinence, like sexual dysfunction, it's not that you have to understand how to accommodate to it. You can treat it. There are secondary treatments available for these side effects and these detriments, but some men don't understand their suitability, candidacy, or even the availability of these treatments. So what we've tried to do is create tools that allow men to understand not just how they're doing, but with some context and with some understanding of the resources that are available to to address some of those. You've been listening to Dr. John Gore, one of the world's most prominent researchers on prostate cancer survivorship. We are sharing some of our clips from previous editions of Men's Health Monthly as we shelter in place during the spread of the corona COVID-19 virus. In December, Dr. Walsh and I spent some time with Nancy Balin. She's the founder and director of the Family Jewels Foundation discussing testicular cancer. 
She lost her son, Jameson, at a very early age from testicular cancer. She told us about her son and what happened. Jameson was 14 when he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. He had had symptoms for upwards of a year. So because it was such a late diagnosis, he was actually diagnosed with a stage they now call stage 3C. His tumors went all the way up to his neck. And he had a very poor prognosis for surviving his first bout. He had very aggressive treatment. He found his way into remission. And the whole family, especially Jameson, enjoyed remission for four and a half years. Typically, if you have not had a recurrence or a relapse of this cancer by about two years out, you're relatively safe. Jameson stayed under surveillance for all those four years, four and a half years, and then at four and a half years after his remission, he relapsed. One of his tumor markers shot up, and we knew that he was in relapse. This time, he was 19 at that point. He had just was just in the process of finishing his first year at WSU as a freshman. He went through aggressive four courses of chemotherapy, which failed and then four courses of high-dose chemotherapy accompanied with a stem cell transplant where he gets his own stem cells back because, of course, his immune system is, is gone after all that chemo. And then he had surgery to try to remove the tumor. The relapse had occurred in his lungs. And unfortunately, this time, unfortunate being the, the smallest possible word I can think of for what happened to, to him and to us, uh, this time the treatment, despite all of the agony he went through the second time, did not work. And on December 31st of 2009, we were essentially <clears throat> told... We we were directly told that Jameson should get done everything he wanted to get done in his life. Oh and and he was gone within 10 months of that on October 7th of 2010 mm. at the age of 20. Mm. How did he handle that? Jameson was quite a stoic. We asked him if he wanted us to leave him alone with his wonderful oncologist, Doug Hawkins, who's still at Children's now. He's a sarcoma guy, but he was our attending. We asked if he wanted a moment alone to speak with Dr. Hawkins. We presumed that he would take that opportunity if he was going to break down, to break down. So we parents left. We left him with Dr. Hawkins for a while, and we started talking about what we had just been told in the hallway while he had some privacy with his doctor. Generally, though, I'll tell you that throughout the next about nine and a half months that he was alive, he just barreled straight ahead. He created a bucket list, which term I used to think was kind of cute and funny, but when you need a bucket list, it Mm. ceases to be funny. Jameson had a bucket list, and he was able to meet most of the items on that list. And he was actually relatively well, and I mean, well is the wrong word, but he was put on an oral chemotherapy agent, which may have helped with this. Uh, he had very bad neuropathy in his feet, so he used a wheelchair at some points. But he did as much as he could for the time that he had left. He went back to WSU and visited people, stayed with his roommate, whose family is very loyal to the foundation still to this day. Nancy Balin joining us, founder and director of the Family Jewels Foundation. The website, by the way, family-jewels.org. Tom? Uh, Nancy, I just have to thank you. I mean, that's an incredible story. The vision of the Family Jewels Foundation is is spectacular. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, how common is testis cancer? It's not that common. Unless you're a young man age 15 to 44, then it's the most common cancer that you're going to experience. And, and yes, it's true. It's still uncommon. And you know who's heard that? Almost nobody. Yeah. Almost nobody has heard that statistic. When I mentioned it in health classes or anywhere else to parents or young, yeah. young people with testicles, yeah. uh, they have never heard that before. And yeah. neither had we. Had we known, I think we might have been able to yeah. save him. And 85% but, 
curable when caught early. 95%. 95%. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And early means localized, still in mm-hmm. the testicle, not having broken out, not not beyond the scrotum, not metastasized beyond the body. Uh, Jameson's, as I told you, uh, one of one of his types of tumors are just masses called teratomas that grow and grow and grow and grow. His highest one was in his neck. He had one behind his heart and actually was originally diagnosed with a cardiac problem yeah. because he was having shortness of breath mm. and chest pain. Well, he, was, he didn't have a cardiac problem. He had yeah. a tumor that was pressing on his heart. This, again, illustrates the vast ignorance that there is about this disease. And we are a set of pretty well-educated yeah. parents and, and very savvy. And mm. we, had, we had no idea that his testicle pain could be cancer. When did he first realize something was wrong? What we know is that he, he had to tell us about his pain and swelling on January 15th of 2005, because instead of getting ready for the ski bus at seven o'clock on a Saturday morning, when we came downstairs, he was instead writhing around on the living room floor, unable mm. to get up. That's when we realized, well, that was the day he was diagnosed. And that was when he finally admitted what was going on. In fact, he originally didn't even want to show us the testicle that was giving him so much pain and swelling. What we later learned, much later learned, is that he had symptoms for upwards of a year before that January day. And given that one of the several types of testicular cancer can double in size every 10 to 30 days, that was very grave lost time. You know, Neil, I want to interject because I want to I want to meet out the goals of the Family Journal Foundation, which is to help no other adolescent or young man die of testis cancer. And so it's worth us talking about how do most men with testis cancer present? Because most men don't present like Jameson did. Some do, but most men present with just a painless lump that they feel in the testicle. And I didn't know Jameson, and I didn't participate in his care. I would wager a bet that that's probably what he experienced for a long time, but was too embarrassed to tell somebody about it or just didn't think anything of it. You know, never had somebody say, hey, your testicles should be, you know, they should be small eggs, robin eggs. They should be ovoid. They should be smooth. There shouldn't be anything hard or lumpy in them. And I bet he just didn't know that. That's right. And what's difficult to admit, but which is what is part of our story and makes every parent I've ever met cringe when they hear it, is that we knew that Jameson was having pain in his groin. And what we thought was going on was that because he was a runner, he loved yeah. to run. Ran in the rain, he ran in the snow, he ran every, everywhere, every time he could. Because he was a runner, we thought that he wasn't wearing tight enough support, shorts, and that his testicles were bouncing and that he was looking for a torsion. So in fact, when I was driving to the emergency room on January 15, 2005, the thought I had to myself was, oh, dude, you finally bought yourself a torsion. So we have to live with the knowledge that we knew that he was in pain, and we thought that we were helping him fix it by making sure he wore correct sporting gear. Yeah. And we had no idea. Yeah. We had no idea it could be cancer. Yeah. And certainly you're not alone. I know. But it, it's, it's hard to live with. And because of Jameson's and our ignorance about this, we have two missions that we carry out. The first one we did was scholarships for kids who've had a sibling with cancer because Jameson bequeathed his college funds to his two little sisters. The other one is educating, educating, educating. I am very fond of saying more often than people want to hear that I am the only female you'll ever meet who's all testicles all the time. 
We are in high school health classes. We talk to Rotary clubs. We talk to social groups, scouting troops, anywhere that people gather, I tell people. I, I teach this. You've been listening to Nancy Balin, founder and director of the Family Jewels Foundation, whose son died from testicular cancer. It was part of our Men's Health Monthly show from December. Dr. Walsh also asked Nancy about risk factors for testicular cancer, as well as the effect of marijuana on young men. Nancy, you know, I'm, I want you to teach me as well. What are, the, what are the number one risk factors for testicular cancer? We've talked about age. It's that age mm-hmm. group, that young age group. Yes. But what are the other things that put a young man at risk for testicular cancer? The number one risk factor that is readily agreed to by all experts in the know is that when a baby boy is born with an undescended testicle, what that means is, you know, all your organs are formed in your in your guts, in your core, and then as the fetus gets older, the embryo gets older, things travel to where they're supposed to end up. Your testicles are supposed to end up in your scrotum. Sometimes one or, I don't know, maybe both of them doesn't. And so that's why in the delivery room, one of the things the pediatrician is examining for is did the testicles descend? They're palpating just like the self-exam that I teach everybody I talk to to make sure there actually are, as we say, balls in the sack. And if there are not, there's a surgery that can be done a few months later to bring the testicle down. Even if a boy has had that surgery, though, the fact that he was born with the testicle undescended, that it it did not get down to the scrotum by the time he was born, remains a risk factor for testicular cancer. It doesn't mean that's causative, but it is a risk factor. As a new study in this month's Journal of the American Medical Association, it reports that men who regularly smoke pot have an increased risk of developing testicular cancer and that the long-term use of marijuana was associated with testicular germ cell tumors. Long-term cannabis users, 36% more likely to be diagnosed with testicular cancer. I want to talk about that, and I want to take a step back and and talk about a couple of the things that, that Nancy mentioned, too. She talked about this notion of undescended testes, which is absolutely critical to know. And so my message here is not just for parents, not just for young boys, but it's also to doctors out there, primary care doctors, pediatricians, to know that if you have a patient whose testicle is not easily examined, this is a patient who needs to see a urologist, needs to see a specialist to address what should be done. And it's really critically important to realize that not only does the surgical treatment of that testicle matter, but it can actually reduce the overall risk of developing testis cancer at some point in life. So it's really important. And it's been an ever-shifting evolution where, you know, it used to be if this happened to a young boy, we might wait till much later in life. But now we really recommend that it be done as early as possible. Nancy Balin joining us. She's the founder and director of the Family Jewels Foundation, family-jewels.org. Dr. Tom Walsh is my co-host. We were talking about marijuana as a risk factor. I think it's a really fascinating story. You know, for years and years in a, in a laboratory, scientists have been looking at the use of tetrahydrocannabinoid for its contraceptive properties. You know, could this have some role in developing a male birth control pill? And it's never been perfect. But in this last decade, originating here at the University of Washington, evidence, epidemiologic data suggesting this link between cannabis use and testicular germ cell cancer. And I think this latest study really sort of nails it, if you will. It is crystal clear 
that cannabis does something to the testes. Mm. Not everywhere else, but it does something to testes. And this is why our data shows that not only may it render some men infertile, but it clearly poses an increased risk for testis cancer. You've been listening to highlights from our December edition of Men's Health Monthly, featuring in-studio guest Nancy Balin, who is the founder and director of the Family Jewels Foundation. Our March edition of Men's Health Monthly is featuring highlights from previous programs as we have asked our scheduled guests to remain home due to the spread of the corona COVID-19 virus. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll share highlights from a program that we did in November as we discussed erectile dysfunction. We'll do that right after this message from the president of the Washington State Medical Association. You're listening to Men's Health Monthly on Sports Radio 950 KJR and Seattle's classic rock station 102.5 KZOK. I'm Dr. Bill Hirota, the president of the Washington State Medical Association, which represents 11,000 physicians across the state. All eyes are on us here in Washington as we strive to contain the outbreak of the coronavirus known as COVID-19. For those of you who may experience symptoms that are associated with the virus, most likely you won't need medical treatment or even need testing for COVID-19. Your symptoms will hopefully be mild and you and your family will benefit from the healthy practices you should follow for any viral infections. These include washing your hands, covering your mouth with a tissue when you cough, then throw it away. If you feel sick, stay home and let the virus run its course using over-the-counter medicines to help relieve your symptoms. And be sure to frequently clean and disinfect objects and surfaces around your home. The time to call your doctor is if you develop a high fever or severe symptoms such as difficulty breathing. If you do need to visit your doctor, make sure the office knows that you may have COVID-19 so that they can take steps to prevent others from being exposed or infected. If you're experiencing flu-like symptoms, you may not need to be tested for COVID-19. The CDC is recommending testing for people at high risk for health complications, people who have been in close contact with someone who's known to be diagnosed with COVID-19, or people who have recently traveled to areas with ongoing spread of the virus. While more COVID-19 testing is becoming available, capacity is still limited. As we observe these precautions, remember that we're all in this together. Let's stay calm, take care of ourselves and each other, and do our best to keep our communities healthy and strong. If you're still having questions, please call the Washington State Department of Health at 1-800-525-0127. Again, that number, 1-800-525-0127. It's open from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., seven days a week. Did you know that diabetes, heart disease, and prostate cancer procedures can contribute to erectile dysfunction? Many men aren't aware of this or of all the treatment options that a board-certified urologist can offer. Understand your options and learn where you can find an ED specialist in Seattle to help. Visit edcure.org to get the facts and find a urologist who can offer treatment options that work when pills and injections don't. Again, that's edcure.org. Welcome back to Men's Health Monthly. I'm Neil Scott, along with my co-host, Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the UW Men's Health Center. Due to the spread of the corona COVID-19 virus, we've rescheduled our March guest. Instead, we're sharing some highlights from previous programs. Back in November, my co-host, Dr. Walsh, presented a primer on erectile dysfunction, pointing out that it's not if, it's when you develop erectile dysfunction. If you live long enough 
anybody who lives long enough will experience ED at some point because getting an erection is hydraulics, pure and simple. It's If you can imagine some hydraulic apparatus, a dump truck, a front-end loader, it is about fluid, in our case blood, pushing into an enclosed space, and that's what causes an erection. And as we get older, it's unavoidable. Our hydraulic system just wasn't designed to last into our seventh, eighth, ninth decades. So at some point, it is going to happen. I, You know, I think it's inevitable for most everyone. Now, when it happens to you is, you know, there... I always say there's what you are born with that you can't change, your genetics, and we have certain genetic predispositions. And then there is the environment. It's what you do to your body, how you treat your body. And we know that people who have either genetics or environmental conditions that lead them to have more vascular disease, blood vessel disease, or have things like diabetes— or other potential insults to their erectile apparatus, like radiation to the pelvis for the treatment of cancer or surgery in the pelvis for the treatment of cancer. These are things that could lead somebody to have ED much earlier in life. But even if none of those things happen, our hydraulic systems for erection simply weren't designed to last. And is it a slow progression? Uh, For most it is. If we just take an average guy, my average patient who begins to notice that sometimes in his late 40s, early 50s, uh, he begins to notice that he intermittently simply can't obtain the erection that he used to. Or maintain the erection. Or or maintain it. That's exactly right. That usually precipitates a question to a primary care doctor and sometimes a trial of something like Viagra or the like, one of the branded pills to help erections. What about the embarrassment factor? I think it's really tough uh, for patients. And I think it's tough for those who are in a long-term established relationship because they don't want to disappoint their partner. But I think it's even more difficult for those men who want to establish a relationship. It's terribly embarrassing to uh, engage in a relationship when you can't predict how you're going to perform. I think one of the first factors that patients experience is is a feeling of guilt. Uh, I think they feel guilty that they can't perform. I think they're afraid that their partner thinks they are no longer attracted to them. Mm. And I think this creates sort of a negative feedback loop. What about men who bypass the physician and go to the Internet and put in their profile and get some mail order Viagra and, and, and try to do it that way? Well, listen, I, uh, number one, I understand why men do that. Uh, there's a convenience factor. And I think medical care, straightforward medical care in the U.S. needs to become easier. But aside from that, I think there is some jeopardy to avoiding your doctor when you're facing this. And the reason for that is that if I'm telling you that you have a disease, a vascular disease, that's manifesting as this, erectile dysfunction, well, what do you think the odds are that there's some other more significant vascular disease somewhere else in your body that needs a little interrogation, a little behavioral modification, a little bit of medicine for something else. Uh, Those things are highly probable. Talking to your doctor openly and honestly about ED is really important, especially if you don't always see a doctor and you're not tuned up all the time. You're not keyed in to your best health, your best self. ED cure is a great source of information for men, and I think there's even opportunities to sort of uh, to fill out a questionnaire and kind of understand how bad is it for you. 
Another great internet source is sexhealthmatters.org. Sexhealthmatters.org. You know, Neil, what I would say about a new diagnosis of ED, a new experience of ED, I look at it as the check engine light. When your check engine light goes Uh on, um, well, it's time to check the engine, right? (laughs) I mean, you can just, you can run down to your, you know, Jiffy Mart and, you know, pour in a quart of oil, but shoot, something's going to go wrong at some point. So don't ignore the check engine light. And when people try the the pills, oftentimes there's limited success with that. This is difficult, right? Because we've all, who's seen the, we've all seen the ads for these pills. And make no mistake, these are great pills. These are really specific medications. And great advertising. And they, yeah. The they, promotion and, and, makes it sound like it's the end all be and, all. And what I would tell you is they work at least half the time. They really do. In the right man, in the right circumstance, they work at least half the time. But what does that imply? That implies that the other half of the time, they may not work. Unpredictable. It can be unpredictable. And, and that's the other challenge. So even if the pills work for you, they may not work the same way every time. Now, I think treatment with a pill, something that you put in your mouth and swallow with a glass of water, that's great, right? It's the, one of the cornerstones of modern medicine. And I encourage everyone to be open with their doctor and get a prescription for these medications. But use them appropriately and still have an open dialogue with your partner that they, while they really do, these are very specific, very targeted, very safe and very effective drugs, they're not going to work the same way every time and they're not going to work every time. That wraps up the March edition of Men's Health Monthly as we brought you some of the highlights from previous programs. Men's Health Monthly airs on the last Tuesday of every month, 8 p.m., Sports Radio 950 KJR, and on the last Sunday of the month at 6.30 a.m. on 102.5 KZOK, Seattle's classic rock station. If you have a question for my co-host, Dr. Walsh, please send us an email at the anonymous inbox, menshealthmonthly at iheartmedia.com. We will not reveal your identity. Until next time, on behalf of my co-host, Dr. Walsh, I'm Neil Scott wishing you good health and good sense in matters relating to men's health. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Men's Health Monthly with Dr. Tom Walsh, Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Washington and Director of the UW Men's Health Center, and your host, Neil Scott.